I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash spoken today. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot. We charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. Hello and welcome everybody to Roll to Cast. Yeah, the Any Winning TTRPG podcast. That's right. <laughs> that's right. I am Phil. I played Zhang on this season. And I am Ellen and I played Kana Hoshi. And yeah, we are wrapping up our content for our Avatar Legends season. That's right. This is going to be the last Avatar Legends episode. It so is. soak it all in now. Yes. And uh, we've got something very special for this episode mm-hmm. because with us today is the co owner of Magpie Games, creative on Zombie World, Masks and Root, and lead designer of Avatar Legends. That's just a little game. You may have heard of it. You may have heard of it. <laughs> it's Brendan Conway. Yay! Hello. Hi. Happy to be here. Thank you for having me. <laughs> no we problem. So, so happy to have you, Brendan. Uh, It is a pleasure. I like to start with uh, at the beginning because it's a very good place to start. So for you, Brendan, where did it all start with with games, with board games and with role playing? Yes, I hear that your father is is a nerd. Is that correct? Yes. uh, In in that way where um, as as he grew older, I think he kind of did a little bit of a... um, you know, growing up and putting away childish things, uh. which I just refuse to do. <laughs> um, so when I was younger, like he was the one who definitely introduced this stuff. Uh, he brought me to the local game store and it was there that I played D and D with uh, the GM Bob, who I will always remember because he taught me Bob. much about the cruelty of DMS and uh, oh, wow. how I asked for it. <laughs> I asked for a dagger one time. I got a silver dagger and it came to me dull. And he was like, well, you didn't ask for it to be sharp. Oh, well, wow. that was a lesson. That's, that's how I learned d Yeah, when you say Bob, I'm hearing like Bob. You're you're from New Jersey. Is that right? Yes. Is that right. why everything yeah. was a bit harsher? <laughs> Even your DM? <laughs> I, I tend to think, you know, in retrospect, looking back on it, I'm like, he was running D&D for a table that had to have 
12 to 16 kids of assorted ages. Mm. And I feel like the way he kept his sanity was by messing with us. <laughs> 12 just, to 16? That is a lot. Wow. I can't. Uh, just thinking about combat makes me want to cry a little bit because that would be so long waiting at a table. Like, when do I get my turn? And then rolling and fumbling. And it's like, okay. <laughs> that's, that's exactly how it felt. And, of course, you would you would be lucky if you survived the combat. That was the other skew of it. So it was, always a, it was a victory just to come out of the session alive. Wow. Shout out to Bob. <laughs> and, and and what's your journey like from from that point to where you are now, designing games and, and sort of having uh, this creative life? So I, I was playing games for years and years and years after that, and uh, a lot of the time with my high school friends and then college friends, and mostly just doing it for fun and periodically noodling on stuff the way I think we all do when you're running games, figuring out how to make things better, coming up with your own little magical items and stuff. Um, and for me, most everything changed when well when the fire nation attacked but um <laughs> it tends to do that yeah i, I had i had to do it yeah um, it, it started to change when i started connecting with a lot of the scene out there people who were uh going to conventions in new jersey like dexcon or dreamation or metatopia um and i started meeting more people and in turn i eventually met mark diaz truman uh and through a couple of different avenues I wrote a really long description of an epic magical item for Dungeon World that I shared. And then I started building something on it as a really like I didn't think anything was going to come of it. It was just supposed to be a nice, fun little reward for a tiny Kickstarter we were doing for a convention where I was going to run this Dungeon World scenario. And I just give everybody my notes. And so that blossomed into me writing a Word document that was like 50,000 words, which was wow. far yeah. more than and like. No one had expected that. <laughs> so we turned it into a book. I would say you exceeded the word count just a little bit. <laughs> just a little bit. Just a little bit. This has always been my personal bugbear and challenge is my, my battle with word counts. Really? Uh, wishing they were always higher. <laughs> You've got to have a good editor, right? Can yeah, pull that's you back right. In. Yeah. At this point, my, my wars mostly exist with our uh, primary layout artist, Miguel Angel Espinosa, who sees the words I wrote and says, Brandon! You can't do that. <laughs> it needs to look pretty on a page. <laughs> needs to fit on a page for one, I guess. <laughs> exactly. You mentioned Kickstarter. And first off, congratulations yes. on, on your Kickstarter for Thank Avatar you. Legends in particular. Yeah. Congratulations on the book. It is gorgeous. We wouldn't have been able to play this season if not for the Kickstarter because we were early Kickstarters. So we, we got the game before it has hit print. Yeah. Hit print. And uh, awesome. yeah, it was, it was really special to kind of get our hands on this and yeah the the book is so, yeah, so beautiful thank you. it's it's wonderful yeah so i had a little bit of a look and you kickstarted a couple of things that, that i know of that i found on ttrpg analytics so zombie world was funded like a thousand percent mass i think was like two thousand percent and then avatar legends was like nineteen thousand <laughs> percent funded nine and a half million dollars raised yeah um <laughs> amazing yeah you definitely it's like your word count you definitely hit it and then you just kept going <laughs> so I, so I guess I have a couple of questions around Kickstarter so I guess the first one is how, how do you feel about Kickstarter as a way of creating things in this space do you think it's like a good system or do you just think it's a necessary one that you're making good use of I, I think it's one of those complicated questions because everything's always evolving and changing our business Magpie Games uh, would not exist 
were it not for Kickstarter. Uh, I was not one of the founders. That was Mark Diaz Truman and Marissa Kelly. But the first couple projects they uh, put up, they only were able to do on Kickstarter. And they always like to tell the story of how they got they got like $2,000, $5,000. That was insane. <laughs> so much money. Um, still sounds like a lot of money to me. Yeah. <laughs> Mind-blowing. But over time, you know, we still have been using Kickstarter consistently for pretty much everything we do. And mm. our business just would not have functioned. We would not have been able to achieve the success we have. Like it, obviously Avatar being an enormous part of that, but the consistent ability to connect with backers, to connect with interested people, to uh, fund these things in such a way that we can go after them kind of safely and know, know that we actually have the interest to support the product yeah. Uh, has made a huge difference over the years. So generally speaking, like, yes, the Kickstarter is a great thing that has absolutely made uh, this entire company, this entire model uh, possible. I say that while simultaneously saying, though, I like seeing new ideas. I like seeing new innovations. I like seeing mm. um, constant feedback loops. Everything I've been seeing about, like, Kickstarter having... Uh, more communication with the creators themselves about what they need or what they want from Kickstarter so that it can better serve uh, the overall community. I, I mean, I even appreciate stuff like uh, BackerKit trying out its own crowdfunding models because I, I think that like that competition is only going to help everybody be better in the long run. Uh, so it's exactly in the space of like tech, young enough that there's still plenty of room, but absolutely hugely important. Yeah, I guess it's like the the proof is in the pudding. You know, it's always a gamble putting out a, a new artistic project. But with Kickstarter, you get to see the the audience that is actually already there clambering for the product. And so it's it's less of that trepidation of, oh, when I put this out, is anyone, is anyone, anyone going to buy it? Buy it? Is anyone going to like it? Whereas, you know, I guess having the the fans early on in the process is like, we will pay for you this if you just give it to us. Here's the money. Now go yeah. go make it. If you build it, they will come. If yeah. <laughs> Excellent. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, just just for its ability to even let fans know mm. that we are doing something, that there, something exists, because that's always one of the hardest parts about doing creative work is mm. letting people even know that it exists so they hear you. Um, Kickstarter's efficacy there, like leaving aside even anything else, has just been such a boon over the years. And and to I guess to not only let people know, but invite them into the project as yes. well. Mm. Yeah. Yes. Absolutely. Special benefits. The dice are very pretty, I must say. <laughs> uh, Ellen's our resident dice goblin. So. Hello. I won't be happy until there's uh, more dice than there is of me. <laughs> <laughs> Needs her weight in dice. Yeah. So, so the second part of my question is, what is the secret to a successful Kickstarter? Yes. Or is that behind a paywall? Ooh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to give an answer that vaguely feels like a cop-out, but it's the honest, the most honest truth I can think of. I'm which here for is, that. <laughs> <laughs> you, you need a team of people who can help handle all of the different aspects, who are going to support their own different pieces, who help you plan the whole thing and like really plan it, have plans for what happens if it fails, have plans for what happens if it succeeds overly much. But doing all of that work yourself can be incredibly difficult and draining, and you're much more likely to just sort of leave certain things off. The reason why a lot of our Kickstarters are successful is because we have these teams. We have 
people doing art so they can make the graphics look great. We have uh, people who are watching the comments for us. And obviously it can be really tough when you're starting off to have this full team, to have everybody doing these pieces. But the more you can sort of invite people in and help support these different pieces, the more you can tap other Kickstarter creators for advice for what they would suggest you do, for things you should pay attention to or be aware of, the more likely you are to build that base and have a strong Kickstarter. Like at this point, the lessons we have learned about things that work and things that don't work have been hard earned over years and years of doing it. And if you are starting out new and you can like ask us questions and tap us and ask other people who've had incredibly successful Kickstarters and break down their pages, you can just build off that knowledge that's already there functionally having the equivalent of a little bit of your own team building on that existing institutional knowledge. So I would just say that the key is if you're starting off, even if you are like, I have this project, this is in my heart. I really want to do this and I'm by myself. Try to talk to people, try to seek additional support from people. The people in this community can be lovely and wonderful and kind and supportive. And uh, if, if you contact a lot of these creators, they will help provide some of the advice or they can point you in some of the right directions. Uh, so make sure you are talking to people, trying to connect and seeing if there are people who can help fill in the gaps where you are missing some skills and they have those skills. Yeah, I guess it's all about uh, teamwork. Speaking of teamwork, <laughs> Avatar Legends has um, a huge team and you're the first one to say that uh, you're not solely responsible for the uh, the, the product. Definitely it's a, not, it's a yeah. team of 18. Is that correct? Uh, yeah. <laughs> I mean, Ish. when I crack open the book and I go to the credits page and I'm like, there are so many people who did yeah. so many things <laughs> and so many pieces. But yeah, I mean, like we can focus on uh, the the core designers. We can focus on the contributing designers. We can focus on all the artists. It's a whole ton of people, all of whom are adding things that may not be obvious, but are important to the overall success of the thing. Yeah, well, I, I guess uh, spinning off of that, my question is, it can be really hard to to work collaboratively and creatively so how do you, as a as a large team like that, how do you collaboratively build a project like this? You know, where do, do you go around a table? Are there lots of brainstorming sessions? Do you kind of give people uh, elements of the work for them to kind of go away and come back? What? How does that kind of look like? There, there are a couple of things you said that we did, uh, and it was sort of a a combination of strategies. We had big meetings up front where we assembled large teams and we got a bunch of feedback and ideas and opinions and thoughts from a lot of the people involved. But then we would drill down to, okay, now we have to act on those. Now we have to start coming up with the actual implementation of mechanics. The design process was one of the earliest pieces of the overall thing. So that's sort of what I'm talking about here when we had these big meetings and then we drilled down into core mechanics. And then later we would circle back to big meetings and check back in. How is this working? We would ask people to go away and play test. And so they could actually see it in action and then come back and provide their feedback. And then we would have to parse that feedback and work on it. One of the, the key distinctions here, I would say, is like that team of core designers, the core designers credit is parsing all of that, constantly trying to take in all of the feedback and improve the core thing, tinkering with the engine directly, and everybody else is contributing constantly, whether through playtesting, whether through looking at a draft, whether through writing drafts and adding them to the book. Uh, everybody's adding constantly, but 
the core game design had to have the, a little bit of the stability of saying like, cool, this is the engine. We're going to touch it. Then we're going to check back. How's that working for everybody? It's not working. Okay. We got to go back. We got to adjust it. We got to turn the knobs. We got to tighten the bolts. We got to make it work better there. Um, the actual writing process gave everybody even more chances to add, to uh, put more input into the book. And a lot of that actually uh, credit needs to be given to uh, Elizabeth Hypratikul, uh, who was the project manager um, who actually, in many ways, like Liz did so much work and made the thing possible in that incredible way of actually holding it in her head and figuring out who was doing what and when. And so she managed a whole stable of writers to produce vastly different <laughs> sections of the book at the same time. Yeah. It is incredible. And and make it all into a coherent whole as well. Yeah. Uh, I, I, I yeah. wanted to give you that space. You sort of leapt in there already of of highlighting some of the contributions that you thought were were really key to to making the project happen. Is there anyone else that, that you think really needs to be is is a, a hero that needs to be acknowledged? Yeah, we've got a spotlight. Where can we shine it? <laughs> <laughs> I, I mean again, in particular for me, uh I I work with Liz like constantly on avatar projects we are continuing to do some work on avatar stuff even today and so she and i just spend so much time and i am so impressed with everything liz has done and continues to do so partly i always just want to shine a spotlight and make sure it's clear like liz is the project manager and that can sound kind of unsexy but <laughs> oh it sounds God. very sexy to us <laughs> <laughs> right right like it, it should it should stand out how important that is, how impressive it is, how incredible the work she did was. And the reason the book exists is in many ways because of that incredible amount of work she did. Mm. Um, I would also want to highlight, though, like all of our contributing designers and, and the, the feedback they give us throughout the process, but especially at the beginning of the process, like framed every conversation that we had after that uh, initial thing. And and again, another piece of this, I don't ever want to discount anybody like Mark Diaz Truman does so much work across the entire business. And he is the CEO of the company and handles so much of the business side, which again, is required for this book to exist. Like I would even want to call uh, our, our uh, shipping director, Derek Kipchinski, who's the reason the book is getting to people across the world <laughs> is in many ways because of the work he did. Even places like Australia. <laughs> and no one ships here. He was so <laughs> proud. He was so proud that we shipped a book to Antarctica. Oh, uh, wow. That was one cool. penguin. Yeah. That was cool. I, imagine, I imagine his job got a lot harder in the last two years as well. Yeah. Yes, yes. It became a slightly different kind of, we we recently moved into it, or I should say, moved into our new office shortly before the pandemic started. And we had specifically gotten this office because it had a big warehouse. We could house our books in the back and oh. ship them out ourselves. And then Avatar happened and we're like, well, we're not doing that. This project is so enormous. Like, we cannot possibly do that. God, that would be such a huge labor force. Like, I can't even imagine. <laughs> Definitely not the work of 18 people. <laughs> I, I was just making sure I pointed the spotlight as well at uh, Marissa Kelly as the art director and Miguel and Espinosa as the layout and graphic design artist for the book. Because the thing you said of like how pretty it is, uh, obviously the artists did an enormous amount of work and yeah. everybody's contributing. But like those two together, the reason why page after page the book is consistent and gorgeous and it has all these great chapter images and all these super cool 
like just you flip the page and you see a new thing mm-hmm. that's that's that team and and they deserve so much credit for oh that yeah we always appreciate a good layout i think we had a lot of fun laughing about uh, uh the witcher with cody pondsmith who yes. decided to write into layout <laughs> as one person yeah. so having a team yeah really helps, helps out there so we'd yeah. love to, to drill it down a bit more into avatar legends specifically we We've had a lot of fun playing it. So we did a 100-year war era. Yes. Um, we had some questions from some of our fans. So I think we'll... Yeah. S- can we start off with, with Easy? uh, Easy's question? Yep. Yeah, about the system. Yeah, so Easy on Discord uh, asked, what made you choose Power by the Apocalypse as the rule set for Avatar Legends? And were there any strong contenders in the running for other systems? Mm. So... Our experience as a company has consistently been in the space of Powered by the Apocalypse framework games. Uh, that is our skill set, or that that's what we've really worked on. And that's not to say we can't or won't ever do anything else, but especially heading into this, those are the tools we are incredibly familiar with and have used and honed time and time and time again. And already, to just to start, we had um, a few of our other games that we could look at and say, here are some of the tools and ideas we can take and adapt to Avatar. Like our initial pitches to even try to get the license involved us needing to say, what was the system? What did we want to do with it? What did it look like? Yeah. So we, we defaulted to our expertise because uh, Powered by the Apocalypse does the kind of play to find out what happens that we liked so that things were not perfectly scripted. You could be surprised. You could have consequences that came out of nowhere but made the world feel real and and consistent in the way that the shows did and the way that the comics do um, while simultaneously targeting these personal journeys that the characters go on. Uh, We have several games that do kind of personal journeys or that focus on the characters and what they're feeling and how they change over time. Uh, Masks in particular is the one for me, having written masks, that really stood out as I was coming in where I was like, these are not the same thing, but there are a lot of tools that are similar, a lot of ideas that are similar. And I can start from masks and say, well, how is Avatar different? Uh, how is it the same? How can I build off of this instead of starting from scratch and having absolutely no basis? So that's why we stuck with Powered by the Apocalypse, both our own experience and expertise with it, but also because we genuinely looked at it and we said, these tools are going to tell the kinds of stories that we need them to do. So for us, there weren't really any other contenders. It's a great tool, certainly for a collaborative game like Avatar Legends. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. Uh, specifically, we, we had a lot of fun, uh, you know, uh, players affecting each other and the the GM also right. kind of being more less, less all of us against the GM and, and more of us all thinking about this as a, a living, breathing story. Yeah. We did something a little bit differently where we didn't do the sitting down and planning and talking about the story before you kind of launch into the game like you're meant to whoopsie (laughs) Uh, I guess the difference of of running a game for a podcast versus around a table sure does that take uh, because the the process is a little bit like storyboarding does that take any of the surprises out of you know if you talk about it as a group oh our scene will begin here and end there does that take any of the surprises out but also does that benefit, uh, you know, fledgling role players? Is it a little bit Brechtian in the idea of like we start here, we end here, but how we get there is all up to you? What's the kind of thoughts there? So the way we intend it 
uh, to be run is like the the very first thing the the time when the group comes together for the very first moment that that whole um essentially the pilot episode of your tv show that's sort of scripted that's sort of we're just going to talk about it that's sort of we're just going to slip past that uh mostly because there is potential to derail every single aspect of the game if you actually play through it you know you can have uh, unfortunate moments where a character is like, I don't know. I don't actually know why I'm here. I don't actually know why I'm with this group. I would just stay home. And yeah. we, we don't really want that. Yeah. Like we, we want everybody to be invested and everybody essentially it's a predetermined conclusion. The pilot episode ends with all of the main characters being a group. There's nothing to discover. Hmm. Uh, but from that point forward though, we do moment to moment have much more of the like, okay, cool. So the GM says you are here you're, you're at the fire temple and the fire nation guards are throwing fireballs everywhere. What do you do? And then we just see what happens next. So the, the actual intent is uh, a lot more like just go, just see what happens, just sort of play through it. And we can periodically uh, take a step back and and talk about like well let's next have a scene where we can sort of take some downtime but part of the joy of the game is this playing to find out not knowing exactly what's going to happen even the gm not being certain what's going to happen the gm needs to have a little bit of that sense of an episodic structure to match the shows a little bit of that sense of like where things are going but even in that case we have regularly had games where the GM's like, this is where I thought things were going and they did not go there. <laughs> yeah. yeah, a few of those moments in our season. <laughs> yeah, so, yeah, I like that. It's it's more about getting the ball rolling in a satisfying way and, and then kind of building from there. Yes. So I want to talk about the, the central pillar of the gameplay, the role play of Avatar Legends, which is this this balance system where every character is, is uh, pulled between uh, two principles both like is that something that was core from the very beginning obviously we said you know you felt like power by the apocalypse was going to be a good tool mm -hmm. but was that the the thing you built onto it first and everything grew from that or or did it sort of come together later and also is it sort of a conscious nod to asian philosophy and the the influences of the game to have the sort of nod to the yin and yang and and the idea of balance at the heart of the game. Yeah, I, I think that from Jump, we had some notion that this was going to be a piece of the game. But it's it's the thing of saying, like, did it literally look uh, at the very beginning the way it does now at the very end? Almost certainly not. <laughs> Uh, we had all of these conversations and developed it and improved it and refined it and came up with all of the additional tools and all of the additional mechanisms that play into it over time. So it's that odd thing where the, the idea of balance and the idea of characters being like needing to push and pull between their struggles may have been there pretty early. Uh, but the exact form that it took was definitely the result of refinement and uh, playtesting and further development. Yeah, I'm I'm pretty sure like both we had some of this in the pitch in the initial pitch that helped us like pursue the license in the first place, but that discussion with the contributing designers was massively important to make sure we were on the right page or make 
Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready get 30, ready get 20, 20, 20, ready get 20, 20, ready get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. I'm sure everybody had their input and was pointing to these sets of ideas. Uh, for me, again, saying I'm coming from masks, part of it was looking at the difference between characters and masks, a game of, of young superheroes, teen titans, uh, and, and saying what the difference was. Masks has shifting labels that represent how you see yourself as a character. That wasn't right for Avatar. That's not quite how the Avatar characters worked. They weren't constantly struggling to define themselves but they were constantly struggling between two poles. The obvious, but by far being Zuko, of course, yeah. Yeah. struggling between his two poles. But that's the the sort of North Star that we looked at as like our guide. Aha, okay. We can represent Zuko's struggle by putting two principles on a track. And then the real thing, the real difficult piece of all of it is making sure that those principles are so perfectly chosen in terms of their words and their ideas that it's not a case in which something is clearly the correct answer that you have a choice to make that's going to come through the course of the story you're telling. Some of the later playbooks slightly violate that. They have more of a clear, yeah, one of these is the better answer than the (laughs) other. But the vast majority of the playbooks are designed so that we want you to actually see who does your character become? It's not a wrong choice to fall off the edge or, or to pick one principle over the other. That does not mean you're imbalanced. It means you're just choosing and deciding who you really are and changing. And eventually it means that story's over. You've resolved this question of the principles. It's not a question anymore. You should change playbooks and get new principles so that there's a new question for your character. That was a key insight that was not for sure there at first. This idea that the center of your balance track can also change and balance does not mean somehow sitting smack dab between the two principles. Balance is something that each of these characters would seek for themselves and they would all have a different place where balance existed for them. So on playbooks, I got a question from the Game Master on our Discord. Of all the playbooks, which was the easiest to develop and which was the hardest? (laughs) 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 interesting question oh interesting question you've got a few playbooks as well <laughs> i'm trying to think i we developed a bunch of the initial playbooks as a team uh the core designers each took one and then we would show them to each other and then we would take a look and poke at them and refine them uh but i think those initial core playbooks were very much 
the strongest and brightest archetypes uh, like we did the idealist. We, we knew there had to be a Katara playbook. Uh, we did the bold. We knew there had to be a Sokka playbook. So that was one of the big things was we were able to start with the characters everybody loves and sort of work backwards and say, how can you make a playbook that can help create those characters, but is not always that specific character. I think uh, some of the difficulties in the core set that we started hitting on uh, were things like the successor. How do we actually represent <laughs> this institution, this the, the money, the wealth of, of your family, the power of your family? How do we represent all of that in the world and make it really matter and have consequence? Mm -hmm. uh, I think the prodigy was oddly a little bit tough uh, because we didn't want to make a playbook that just made you better than everybody, even though, you know, that's tough. Um, we, we just didn't <laughs> want one that was so utterly overpowered and yet it had to be powerful. You had to feel like tough. Uh, so it was very much walking a tightrope to get that exact fine line. Uh, and for me in particular, I think I, I designed the pillar and I really enjoyed, um, coming up with how to represent uh, Suki and Suki's own particular brand of being a leader, being this expert figure, but she can move into the spotlight and she can move out of the spotlight. And what does it mean to be this kind of team player role in a way that a lot of the characters aren't? So there was a lot of work for me that was, it was difficult in the sense of trying to solve this puzzles. Uh, how do we represent that? How do we make that work? Uh, but it was also a lot of fun for me. My, my quick follow-up question is, what playbook are you? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> my balance is between work and oh, more dear. work. <laughs> work and sleep. <laughs> oh, this, it's so painful. It's so painful to say. Here at Rollcast, we ask the hard questions. <laughs> I mean, I can, say, I can say what some of my favorite playbooks are. It's tough for me to pick one. Yeah, you go I'm for like, that. You can am dodge I, the am question. I the no, I'm not. I'm not the hammer. I'm not just gonna punch things. That's not me. But I like the hammer. Um, I, having designed the razor, the razor in uh, Wan Chi Tong's adventure guide. Uh, it's not one of the core playbooks. It's one of the expansion playbooks. But because I always had in my dark little heart this desire that wanted um, the story where Azula stops being just a monster and actually becomes part of the team and tries to maybe be a better person. The Razor is my playbook for that. Uh, so that's kind of one of my favorites. Yeah, it's a tough story to tell. So, yeah. It's, yeah. Because yes. everyone hates Azula. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Oh, um, I, I was going to ask, we have a lot of cool things happening in Avatar. We have players affecting each other. We have people calling each other out. Um, but largely the system is non-lethal. Um, you just kind of get knocked out of a fight or you know you you do lose an encounter but you live to fight another uh, another day yep without lethality how does that kind of affect a system was that an early decision you know like the show we're not going to show anyone being murdered we're not going to show our our characters you know killing each other or other people yes um but how does that how does that help you create stakes in a game if you know that your characters are going to get in a live to see the next adventure yeah i think uh part of it was obviously just honoring the show and the the tone of the show the uh family friendliness of the show it's not to say you know when you get into legend of korra some of those things can be pretty pretty heavy uh so it's not as if you can't touch 
serious stakes and dramatic moments while avoiding lethality. And, and that was one of the big things that we had in mind the whole time was that the what the story is about are these consequences and these characters and the decisions they make, not necessarily whether they live or die, because if they die, that's the end of the story. Mm. Uh, to use kind of a, a, a metaphor for what's going on in you know movies and culture in the mcu in the marvel cinematic universe there's this constant storytelling problem where they keep killing off the villains <laughs> and yeah. that means like you you can't build a relationship with these characters mm. you can't see the antagonist and want the antagonist to get better or really hate the antagonist because they go away at the end it's the end of a story so the the sense of consequence, the sense of stakes actually in some ways is undermined when you have this ongoing story and these characters just exit never to come back. Obviously, in the MCU, they can come back with superior nonsense. <laughs> well, some of them don't want their contracts renewed. So. <laughs> no, well, they can't. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> but, but for us, it was that realization that like, which is the harder thing to have happen to the character in this moment? Is it that they die or is it that they are captured, imprisoned, maybe carted back home to their mom, who's that Fire Nation general, who's incredibly mad at them and refuses to let them go and basically traps them inside their home palace? Which is the actual more interesting consequence in that moment? Oh, wow. Uh, it sounds a lot like... I was going to say, have you listened to the season, Brendan? <laughs> <laughs> yes, one of my main villains was my mother, who was a Fire Nation general. Ugh. Yeah, I mean, that's that's doing it right. That's exactly doing it right, yeah. <laughs> We've been, been endorsed. Yeah. Um, so there's, there's a very clear love uh, coming from you for the source material. Uh, and on that note, we had a question from uh, Andrew James on Twitter. Do you want to read that one out? I sure can. Uh, Avatar is a huge IP with source material, but mainly covers just the two errors that we see. How did you decide which errors to include and did anything get rejected? What sort of guidance did you get when writing the setting chapters? Yeah, uh, <laughs> this was one of the new things that we had never really dealt with before. Uh, we, we had done the Root role-playing game, but Root is a board game and uh, Leader is kind of a small team, Leader Games, who made the board game, is kind of a small team like us. And so developing that RPG was a lot simpler because there wasn't a ton of existing lore and we could easily just check in with leader and be like what do you think you think this is good and they're like yep that's good and we're good we're done <laughs> um whereas with avatar obviously exactly as you're saying we had to take in all of the existing media we had to make sure that we were doing right by it we had to answer questions that weren't necessarily already answered uh, the eras in particular came about because at the very very beginning we were kind of thinking Let's just set it in Republic City. Republic City is such a, a huge environment with so much going on. It's going to be so good for so many stories. And almost immediately we were like, this is not this is not the right move. Mm. It's not what fans are going to want. It's not even necessarily what we want. There's a lot of other places people are going to want to play. How can we structure that? And that's when we started talking about, well, the easiest way to break it down is to break it down into the avatars as this sort of descriptor of different time periods. Yeah. That's why we focused on the avatars as the eras, uh, because they just easily broke up the time frame and allowed us to say, OK, 
So this is the Kiyoshi era, and we can say all of these things would be true, even though we're going to set it at a very specific point in time to just make absolutely clear these things are true. We all know kind of that the technology is going to be different than it is in the Korra era. It, it let us have those conversations productively. Uh, we didn't really exactly leave anything on the floor in terms of those discussions beyond the idea that, do we want to do more eras? Did we talk about other eras we'd want to do? Of course, there are lots of other eras that we'd love to do. That would be super cool. Yeah, go, yeah. keep going further back yeah. into the history. Yeah, <laughs> The first Avatar. Right. It, well, and, and the, the uh, what is it? Dawn of Yang Chen, uh, I think, is the new novel that just came out. Uh, that details stories about Yang Chen. And we're, we're looking at that and kind of salivating at the prospect <laughs> of doing a Yang Chen era. Um, so for that, we definitely had to figure out those eras based on what existed. And the Kiyoshi era novels helped us a lot for that. Uh, we obviously had the source material of the TV show and the comics for the Ang era, for the Korra era, and even for the Hundred Year War era. The Roku era was the most interesting, complicated one because there isn't much about the mm. Roku era besides those couple of episodes of the show. And so that was definitely a case in which we worked directly with Avatar Studios. We had uh, meetings with the creators of Avatar, Mike and Brian, and we we would talk about what that era might look like, what would be going on in it. What would the conflicts of that era be so that we could best represent it in the game? So and and it's worth noting everything we did uh, went through the process with the rest of Avatar Studios with uh, Nickelodeon to just make sure it was reflecting the overall property and and making sure it was adhering to their vision, their creative vision for the overall thing. Speaking of getting to to work hand in hand with Nickelodeon, obviously you had to pitch the idea of an Avatar TTRPG for them. So what was the what was the beginning idea of why did you want to make an Avatar TTRPG? Obviously, there are parallels there with coming off of masks and making stories about young people deciding who they are and what they want their future to be. Um, but what specifically about Avatar was uh, uh, sparked the idea of, I think this would be good for a TTRPG. Let's go see if we can get the IP. <laughs> So at some point we had these conversations where we were kind of like pie in the sky. We can get anything we want. What, <laughs> yeah. what properties would we want? Ooh, what, like, what would we grab? Okay. Um, and Avatar was was one of them because as we, I mean, we, as a starting point, we loved the source material. Like I had watched the shows multiple times and imbibed the comics, and like I absolutely loved everything that had come out for it. Uh, so I was already just a fan of the whole thing. So we made the list of of all the things we could think of. But um, the the actual defining quality that made the difference between uh, things that we were just fans of and thought were cool and things we thought would actually work as RPGs and therefore that we wanted to work on was this sense of like a larger world that had more stories to be told. Um, sometimes we would talk about about properties and we'd be like, but the story of that property was told. The, the story's over. There's not something more important to say there. There's an argument that, I mean, 
uh, off the top of my head, Harry Potter is one of the ones that leaps to mind as, as a tough one. Like you can imagine the stories of all of the other students. So maybe there is space for more stories, but simultaneously you're like, but the story was Harry and Voldemort. Mm, and yeah. are, how many, how many other stories are there? Are we sure there are other stories? <laughs> then you get Whereas into in cursed Avatar, child territory. <laughs> right. But, but like here we could immediately say we have these two different shows. We have these two very different avatars. They already prove there are so many stories to tell. And this world is so big. You can imagine stories in the Earth Kingdom, stories in the Fire Nation, stories in both of the two water tribes. There are stories all over the world, stories across all the different eras, stories of heroism that can exist at so many different levels that it was easy for us to look and say, cool, even though the most important story, for instance, in the, in the, at the end of the Hundred Year War is Aang overcoming the Fire Nation, that doesn't necessarily actually mean there aren't more stories to tell. I mean, you said your own game was set in the Hundred Year War era, and I'm imagining it's like the exact same sense that there are so many stories in and around and under and before the stories of the shows and the comics that we've already seen. Yeah. yeah. That's the difference. We revolve, yeah. we, our, our main thing was Chris talked about this in our, in our last episode, our ra- wrap up episode, but that he really wanted to explore the story of the siege of Barsing Say. Yes. Because obviously it's a thing that we know happens. Yes. Um, but there's not a really a lot of talk about how they staged that siege, what happened, you know, they would have had to have planned that and move into it. So, yeah, it was that thing of uh, Avatar's such expansive lore that really can go yeah. anywhere. And even though there are these milestones that happen in the lore, there's still a lot of grey area about how and when, but there's a lot of implication that it's going to affect a lot of people's lives. You just don't hear from them. Yep. I mean, I do have a spring-off question, which go is a bit naughty. It. What other IP would you grab? And what's one of the IPs that you put on that list of like, oh, we'd love to do that. But then you went, oh, that actually would never work. Ever. <laughs> uh, let's see. So <laughs> there's there's some of them that I'm going to hesitate to say only Ooh. because we still might have a shot. Yeah, yeah. Oh, okay. So, you don't want to blow it. I don't, don't want to go too far. Uh, but like one of them that I know a bunch of people in our in our company are clamoring for uh, is we're sort of interested in the Horizon, Horizon oh, Zero yeah. Dawn, oh, very cool. Horizon Far West. That would that, be cool. That seems expansive in exactly this way. That even though it's about Aloy, there is a big world there. There could be lots of stories there. Uh, we really just liked the world building of that place. For me personally, this is the super nerd answer, uh, and I still really do want this one, uh, but. <laughs> It's the culture books, the culture novels by Ian M. Banks. Oh, yes. Uh, you got one, nerd. Just, one out of two. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> they're a post-scarcity sci-fi society. Where oh, they, that's your jam. Yeah, they've moved past the, the need for, like, individual, like, struggles and stuff. Mm-hmm. So it all becomes, like, expansive and... All the ships are sentient and oh, have great names. Oh, brilliant. Great. Phil's on board. Yeah. Phil's your first Make Kickstarter. Make it for me. Yeah. <laughs> Let me know when the kick, I'll be the first backer. Yeah. If you want to, is it nine, $9 million? What? Yeah, that's right. Yeah. yeah you want to fund that, Phil? <laughs> Not sure I'll have quite the same pool uh, as much as, as well loved as they are. Yeah. Um, I wanted to ask, so obviously the, the book is just coming out. 
uh, and that's that's great. That's fantastic. But w- what is next for for Avatar Legends? <laughs> what have what have fans and people who are diving in now got to look forward to? So I'm pretty sure uh, that these things are now officially announced. I considering trying to remember. I think I was the one who announced them at New York uh, Comic Con. We have a book coming out uh, that is just about Republic City. Uh, it's focusing on the city as a full and deep and complex location. It's going to include several new playbooks. Uh, obviously, those can be used in any setting at all. Uh, but it's also going to include new techniques. It's going to include a few more write-ups, those legendary NPC write-ups for a few more of the important characters of Korra era. It's going to include rules for pro-bending, rules for mechs, rules for car chases. Uh, there's a bunch of fun stuff in that book that I'm excited about. And we also have uh, a starter set uh, coming soon, I think, um, that uh, should hopefully be a really nice uh, springboard for people who are even less familiar uh, with RPGs. For all the mums and dads out there yeah. who don't quite get it. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Um, well, I think this is, we are ramping towards the end of this yeah, yeah. episode. Would you like to, have you got any last thoughts, Phil, or last burning questions? Um, I, I'd just like to give this opportunity for, uh, you to do any kind of shout outs or, or promote any projects that you've got coming up or as anything, you know, open floor for you to, to talk about whatever you like. Yeah. Take the stage. <laughs> Uh, so basically I I work full time, uh, at Magpie. I'm a co-owner at Magpie. So most of everything I would want to plug in terms of my own work comes through in Magpie. If you ever want to follow that, uh, check out the Twitter at Magpie official. Got a very active discord as well. Yes. 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 We have an awesome discord. Uh, a lot of credit there talking about like all these people on the team who do so much important work that is not necessarily recognized in the book, like Kate Bullock. Uh, is the community manager, and she does amazing work uh, uh, managing that community and, and helping make sure all these events go off, and she's incredible. But the, the big thing I wanted to plug, um, it's coming soon. The Kickstarter backers are getting their books, uh, and the PDF is coming out. So if, you have, if you're not a Kickstarter backer, stay tuned. You will shortly be able to pre-order uh, Pasión de las Pasiones. Ooh. Uh, this is this is a game that's written by Brandon Leon Gambetta, and I had the honor and the privilege to work with him, to mentor him, to essentially do the project management role on behalf of this book, uh, shepherding it through. But it's his game and his baby and his design. It is a game of telenovelas. <gasps> oh, wow. Oh, so- <laughs> sorry, now it's my turn <laughs> to nerd out. <laughs> That is so exciting. I I am so proud of this book. I am so proud of his work. I am so proud that it is so friggin' sexy. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) uh, It it is a delight. I'm really happy that it's going out to people. I think uh, it would be a kick for anybody to take a look at it. So uh, keep your eyes peeled. The pre-orders for that are coming. Uh, and it will be available for everybody to purchase from our website. Uh, right now, again, Kickstarter backers are getting their copies, so they're going to have a little bit of time with it, but that means that people should be talking about it. Reviews are coming out and so on and so forth. It's just such a delightful game with so many fun ideas. There's a playbook for just playing the twin yes! of another character, <laughs> uh, which is brilliant. Is there, are there rules for amnesia? Yeah, amnesia <laughs> or uh, coming back from like, a coma. <laughs> 
Um, what, being your one of my own. favorite things. It's it's one of my favorite moves in the whole book. There's a move that lets you accuse someone of lying, and the move oh. is not dependent on the truth. Yes. So you can accuse someone of lying, and as far as everybody at the table knows. You're wrong. They, they were telling the <laughs> truth. But by making the move, you can rewrite the fiction. You can suddenly change things and reveal, no, they were lying. Oh, my God. <laughs> so wonderful. It was you that killed my father. Excellent. Uh, well, I will say that is definitely one for the mums out there. So, yes. Uh... <laughs> I think that just went straight on Ellen's list. Yeah. So, yeah. <laughs> it, it actually is on my list to play. <laughs> uh, thank you so, so much for giving up your time and speaking us with us today Brendan we really really appreciate it absolutely it was my pleasure thank you so ours much too. Yeah, and a big too, thank yeah. you to everyone at, at Magpie Games yes. as well because um, we've had a lot of talks with you with you all uh, in the in the whole you know duration of this season and you guys have been uh, sharing our, our stuff on social media and yeah we just want to say a big thank you to you Brendan but also everyone at Magpie Games for just making this game but also um, creating a wonderful community in the TTRPG space we really appreciate that. You're, of course, very welcome. And we're incredibly grateful that you did all that you did and ran the game for so long. And, and we're so happy you had such a good time with it. Our longest season. Absolutely. <laughs> is, yeah. We, we, we had an absolute blast with it. Yeah. Um, but all that remains, uh, that is the, this is the end of our Avatar Legends That's Homeland it. content. It's all done. So uh, all that remains is to uh, encourage everyone to to come back Next week, where Ooh. we are beginning with episode zero of our Starfinder content. That's right. We are moving away into sci-fi, baby. Yeah, Finally. we're <laughs> blasting off into space, into fantasy space. So please come back for that. Uh, there'll be a, a title reveal for yes. the, uh, the season and get to hear about all about our characters and everything else. And our new cast member. Yes, yes. yes. So. So it's very exciting. Please, please, please do come back for that. And also just to plug that if you want to support us in particular, we have a Patreon. That's patreon.com slash roll to cast. We can get access to a private area of our Discord, get episodes a day early, uh, and just that warm, fuzzy feeling of helping us uh, make our content. Yeah. Uh, But until we see you next week, uh, we will sign off. I have been Phil. I have been Ellen. And thank you, Brendan. It was my pleasure. Thank you. Yay. Bye, Bye, everyone. You have been listening to Homeland, which is a Roll to Cast production. The best way to find us is on Twitter, Discord, and our Patreon. All our podcasts are on Acast, Spotify, YouTube, and all good podcatchers. You can support us on Patreon at patreon.com forward slash roll to cast. Avatar Legends, the role-playing game, was created by Magpie Games. Nickelodeon, Avatar, and all related titles, logos, and characters are trademarks of Viacom International Incorporated. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. 
The Real Housewives is a guilty pleasure for most. But if you're looking to not feel guilty about that pleasure, tune in to Everything Iconic with me, Danny Pellegrino, where I break down all the messy moments and behind-the-scenes antics of Bravo's popular franchise. And on Everything Iconic, I also interview celebrity guests like Kelly Ripa, Kiki Palmer, Drew Barrymore, Cameron Diaz, and more about their guilty pleasures, their past work, and so much more. So if you're pop culture obsessed and find yourself watching way too much reality TV like me, tune in to Everything Iconic with Danny Pellegrino, wherever you listen to podcasts. ACAST helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. ACAST.com. <laughs> 